So no matter how you feel about the events and persons the movie The Sound of Freedom is based on, the fact remains that the movie did far better than what was expected. I mean, it knocked off Indiana Jones. Now couple that with the success of the TV show The Chosen, and now we can see a pattern. And that pattern is that society as a whole is starving for quality entertainment of real spiritual substance. Today on the podcast, I have David W. Patton and Michael Ness on. Now, if you remember, about a year ago, I had David on the podcast. He's an independent filmmaker who was starting the process of making a movie about Joseph Smith. Well, the plans on that movie have now changed a little bit, and it will now be a six-season series with Michael Ness helping out to maintain and help ensure historical accuracy. We talk about the state of the mainstream film industry today, how these two men plan on making a series about Joseph Smith that is historically accurate, the blessings and challenges they have seen in the process, and how you, the listener, can get involved to help the series get made. Along the way in our conversation, we also talk about how storytelling is important to society, the need for true history to be told, and some pretty interesting tangents about the prophet Joseph Smith. And that's next on this episode of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Look, it's no secret that our society has become much more crude and coarse. To become and raise men and women of virtue and character is a Herculean task. To help with this, I have recently wrote and published a book. Now, back in the 1700s, Washington had a book called Rules of Civility and Decent Behavior in Company and Conversation. It was a book with 110 rules that talked about how to conduct yourself like a civilized person in society, something that today's society is sorely lacking. What I did is I went back through the book and I reinterpreted his original sayings for the 21st century. So the book is laid out in a way in which you see Washington's original rule. Right below that is my explanation for the 21st century. And below that, you'll find two or three examples of where to use this in the real world. Now, to go along with this, there's a workbook that helps parents teach these principles and practices to their kids. To find the book, go to mormonrenegade.com, go to the bottom of the page, Search out the blog post and order your copy today. I can bear personal testimony from personal experience that this is an invaluable tool to help you raise men and women of virtue and character. You're listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. David, Michael, thanks for being here, fellas. Thank you, David. Thanks for having us. I'm the odd one out here, um, <laughs> but it's good to be with both of you, David. <laughs> so what's cool is, is that normally when I have this conversation with, with either of you, we've got to do it from Missouri, right? You're in Missouri. I'm here in Zoom. Fortunately, things worked out just the right place so that you guys were both here at the same time. And I, I love these face-to-face. You can get a way better vibe than what you can um, over Zoom sometimes. So I'm, I'm super grateful you're here. But anyway, so when we talked to you last time, David, you were in the process of making the a new film about Joseph Smith, a series, right? Correct. And where's that at right now? It's evolved some. Uh, originally, it was going to be short films, a series of short films or vignettes that are little-known stories about the life of Joseph Smith told from the perspectives of people's journals. 
and uh, since since meeting with uh, some people in the church, um, the suggestion was, hey, this will be a lot more effective as a, a full-on TV series. And after much prayer and contemplation on the subject, um, I've decided that that's probably the best way to actually capture the entire arcing history of Joseph Smith and his ministry. And so it is now going to be a six-season TV series. Six seasons? Correct. Nice. Nice. So uh, do you, is there a, a certain, like, studio that you're going to be able to do this through or are is this independent or it's independent for now uh we're taking a very uh i would say an approach that's been done before like the chosen did the chosen what they did was they made a short film roughly 20 minutes long about the birth of jesus christ from the perspective of a poor shepherd right and what that short did they released it for free and it allowed people to see their abilities as a filmmakers, and they would announce the TV series with that short film and mention that they were now looking for, for funding. And mm. they broke the record for right. the, the largest crowdfunded project ever. You know, this is nuts. And, and I want to ask you about something else here when I'm, when I'm done. But this is just it. This is showing that there is a hunger out there for this kind of programming or this kind of entertainment. So I, uh, look, no matter how you feel about him, the movie was good. I haven't made up my mind yet. But I I took my family on the 4th of July and we went and saw The Sound of Freedom. Excellent. And it was a fantastic movie. And then come to find out, it's it, it knocked off Indiana Jones. It, it absolutely is killing it still this weekend. But what disturbed me the most, David, was when um, there there was a, like a little two minute thing after the movie, and in it, Jim Caviezel, interestingly enough, the guy that played Jesus as well in Passion of the Christ, he played uh, Tim Ballard's part, and he said, you know, this film sat on the shelves for five years. And I, being the guy I am, I can't ever just leave anything alone. So I came home, set off a bunch of fireworks. I'm like, I got to get to the bottom of this. What happened? So 21st Century Fox, I believe, was the original studio that produced it. Disney buys Fox, and then Disney just shelves it, just sits on it. Is that normal? Or you you worked in in Hollywood, right? You were you were there in the belly of the beast. Is this normal? So it is now. It has not always been, but it is now. Uh, there is a certain type of content that Hollywood wants to be released. And I hate to put it bluntly, but I will. The adversaries behind it. Okay. And anything that we try to release from a gospel perspective or from a liberty and freedom perspective, they do not want it released. Mm. There's, there's some sick, dark stuff going on in Hollywood. And uh, they don't like the independent filmmaker. Studios do not want to work with independent filmmakers at all because usually the content that they want to put out has some degree of morality. Right. And uh, that's not in Hollywood's interest. Right. That was what I was afraid of. I was hoping because, you know, call me Pollyannish, but I I was really hoping, you know what, it's probably just... um, it's probably just because they don't think it's going to make enough money, but that makes me even more 
that was my original thought was is that they they just didn't want to want to release it so is that something that's always been there that that stuff of has that been your pri- primary experience has it always been one of those things where they don't want to put out movies that or content that is uplifting and spiritual in nature or is this a recent development it's not a recent development i kid you not this started 90 years ago really yeah i've done some uh in extensive research on um hollywood's growth and how much Nazi Germany influenced it back in the 1930s, mm-hmm. and how much Adolf Hitler himself sent two of his top officials to America to immediately infiltrate Hollywood and start raising a ruckus against Christian content, right. saying that Christian content should not be infor- or should not be released because they're trying to enforce their Christianity doctrines upon the populace, and that this should be for entertainment reasons only. And they, they raised quite a ruckus throughout the 30s. And, uh, and it was all stemmed from Hitler wow. because he was well aware that if you can control the media, you can control an entire society. And his, his, goal, his goal was to rule the world. Absolutely. And, uh, and so that's where it started. Right. And they got better and better and better over 90 years. You know, without – okay, let me just get some tinfoil real quick So I'm going to put it on. And you can slide that mic over sure. to you if it's easier for is you. It, so is my buttons bending coming? over? Oh, yeah. All there right, you go. Right. You don't have to keep bending over. All I was feeling right, we'll bad. You made you, you made you look like you were crouched over there too much. I'm like, that no poor worries. guy's gonna have back problems by the time we're <laughs> yeah, done. He already does. Um, <laughs> <but> <laughs> I like it. Um, last last week? No, the week before it was the week before the Fourth of July. Um, as an early Father's Day present, I shouldn't say early. She gave it to me early, but. As a Father's Day present, my wife got us tickets to go down and see to St. George and see the Glenn Beck Museum that he rolled in there. And there's one particular room I did not like but felt it was super important. And that was the modern progressive era room. And what you had in there is you had people like Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, and what she was responsible for. You had things on propaganda. And here's the part that, that made me sick. I always thought it was a invention of the Third Reich. Not so. There is a letter that he had where, um, from like the, the people in charge of the eugenics writing to the Human Betterment Society, which was the eugenics program, thanking them and Margaret Sanger for their work towards eugenics and that the Fuhrer took his his cues from them. Likewise, I also wow. discovered that there was a guy in America named um, Bernays, Edward Bernays, I think his name was, um, who uh, was the king of advertising. Prop- when you get down to advertising, it's really nothing more than propaganda, right? I mean to a certain extent and he was the guy who was responsible for making bacon part of breakfast in the morning that was his big claim to fame before that it was always toast and coffee and that out the door you went and the the kind of the pork conglomerate came to him and said hey we need to sell more more product he found a couple of doctors who were willing to say you know this is healthy 
And that's how it that's how how it got happened. No, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with bacon. What I'm saying is yeah, let's not get carried away. Whoa, 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 whoa. Slow your roll. Right. Mike's a big fan of bacon. For right. Sure. <laughs> Who isn't? Right. So w- what I'm saying here is that we've been guilty of this stuff ourselves. Right? And Agreed. and we like to think that this started in Germany and then we imported it. Which is kind of true when you look at Operation Paperclip, but we were the guys who pioneered a lot of this. And so it, it doesn't surprise me when you say this This comes from around World War II that we see this. Sure, yeah. Um, the, the other thing I'm noticing for perhaps the first time in a, ever is just the outright evil that seems to be portrayed. I mean, people wearing satanic kind of masks during major events you know the halftime of the football show Mm. and if there's one thing i will go to war over it's my football so don't (laughs) screw with that right but but that's what i'm noticing is that the 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 darker the darkness seems to be growing here a little bit and it seems like and of course it would have to go into to our movies oh certainly i i would i would say that is terrible and horrific a lot of that display is it's not near as terrible and horrific as those that wear the mask of morality and have a humble face but deep down are deceptive and manipulative and uh you know teaching false doctrines when they're believed to be great people and uh i think it's actually just a distraction honestly i think satan is deliberately using these people that are willing to dress funny like that and, and satanic to distract us thinking that's the evil over there because of how it looks. So if you look opposite of that, then it's not evil. Do you see right, what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I think it's deliberate by Satan. I think he puts it into these people's hearts and because they don't know how to discern anything, they just go with it. But there are a lot of uh, deceptions. It was prophesied in our, in our day. Right. Even Joseph Smith had prophesied this, that in the last days there would be so many deceptions and unless you were filled with the Spirit of God or what was it, the very elect? Unless the, even the very elect yeah. would be deceived. Yep. I'm, I'm relying on Mike to correct me on some <laughs> of this stuff. Because he, he's better with this quote and stuff. But um, yes, I definitely think that uh, it's a deliberate distraction. Um, but I think that Hollywood in particular, they just don't care. Right. They really don't care. They don't care about anything but their own rule, which frankly stems back to Satan or Lucifer. Wow. Man. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about the series itself. Now, Michael, you're actually kind of like a historical guy on this, right? Yeah, I've agreed to be a historical consultant for this and to, to help make sure that, you know, we're deriving the story from historical sources and uh, doing everything faithful to the context that these stories are in. Yeah, um, so that we're getting a fully fleshed, uh, you know, true characters of all those involved, and try to be very truthful and honest in representing um, our faith and, and the restoration. And our, our our goal is to just show the Lord's hand in raising up Joseph Smith uh, as a prophet of God and how he lived and died a prophet of God. And we hope that that will strengthen the testimony, especially of youth. Um, I would say because I mean personally, I'd rather my kids would read books. But we don't live in a world, unfortunately, where people read a whole lot anymore, and they get their media from, you know, visual entertainment. And I'm not gonna lie, there are there are there, I've seen plenty of films or TV series where you do feel inspired. You do f- because some there was someone in the process of creating that that had some inspiration from heaven, 
and, and a, it, some eternal truth was placed in there, and it, and it becomes uplifting, or at least partly uplifting. Right, and, certainly. And it, can, those moments can forever change someone's development. Right. And if yeah. I may add here, and I appreciate you saying that, Mike, if I may add, jump back in front. <clears throat> a, a film or a TV series, even if it's super, super inspiring, will not give a person a testimony. Right. The sure. goal here is to create enough spark to where they will read and pray to okay. get a testimony. And that's why getting the history, the history accurate is so important because that the history is, we don't have to do anything to it. We don't have to change anything about the history. We just, we're just telling it. And when they see that and if it creates a spark and they want to learn more, they can go read and pray and hopefully, hopefully receive a testimony from heaven about the truthfulness of it. Right. So Joseph Smith, he's, he's, that's ambitious, right? Because we've seen portrayals of Brigham before, usually not flattering, right? <laughs> but no one has dared take on Joseph Smith yet. Go ahead. Well, I, I don't know. Uh, you watched, did you watch Under the Banner of Heaven? They did try a portrayal of, of they Joseph tried, Smith, right? right? And so, uh, but are we going to, do we want to let other people frame our beliefs, you know, I don't think we should be more responsible than that. I, I agree with you. And that was part of the impetus of the, of the podcast was I didn't, if we didn't tell our own story, then we acquiesce to somebody else. And, and we're going to let them try to tell our story. And they're going to find whatever puts, pardon the expression, asses in seats. Right? <laughs> That's it. That's the goal. Certainly. And so the more sensational, the more more money they make. In taking on Joseph Smith, what what have been some of your major fears in doing this? This is unprecedented with Joseph Smith. What what were some of the things you were most concerned about as you started writing the script, as you started looking at the process of this? So when, when Jesus Christ was up on the earth, he promised his apostles and his disciples that if you end up following me, you end up carrying on my work, you're going to suffer a similar fate. Right. And my greatest fear is that if we defend Joseph Smith, it's possible we could suffer the same fate. But because Joseph Smith was such an inspiring figure and he was willing to die to defend the truthfulness, it's inspired me to be willing to do it. I'm not saying that would ever happen. I mean, we live in a different time and people are a lot more, you know, kinder about just let's just go kill him. Um, but... That would I would say that's the biggest fear, and I hope that answers your question. There are other smaller fears. How, yeah, how, I, I was talking more about the smaller fears, like sure, like <laughs> trying to have somebody portray the prophet in such a deep way. Yeah, right. Most of the time, we've sure. gotten glimpses of the prophet Joseph Smith in film, like Under the Banner of Heaven. It's it wasn't flattering by any stretch, but it was fleeting. Right. Sure. The same thing sure. in a lot of uh, other LDS church productions is that it's fleeting. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think back of the legacy movie. I don't know if you guys remember that. It was yes. popular when I was first coming into the church in 95. Mm -hmm. Sure. I went and saw it at the Joseph Smith Memorial Building and they showed him, but it was very fleeting and it was very superficial. If you're going to do a six season series on Joseph Smith, this is a character that now has to be developed. Certainly. Right. This is not your typical, you know, just just give the, 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 the narrative, so to speak, that, that we all have as Mormons. Now you're going to develop a guy with 
well, pardon the expression, parts and passions. Sure. Right? How how do you how do you do that? Okay. So the history already did it for us. Right. Uh, it's our job to analyze the history close enough and use a standard like all truth shall be established by out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. And so if we find multiple sources in the historical context that confirm that Joseph Smith did something in a certain way, in a certain manner, that's history. Right. That's truth. It's been established. Now, as far as the portrayal, a lot of that's going to come down to an actor. Right. And and a director that can sit down with that actor and, and help capture this history together to say, who is this guy? And uh, frankly... If, if we were to bring in an actor, say, that uh, got their idea of Joseph Smith from Mormonism unveiled, it's not an actor we're going to use. Right. Because very biased, obviously uh, hurtful affidavits were written against Joseph and his family in that book. So uh, the approach here is that if I'm auditioning for a Joseph Smith actor— I'm not looking just for talent. I'm looking for testimony as well. Okay. Because if you've got a testimony as to who this guy was, you're going to approach it as to as who he was, not as some progressive historian says he was. Right. Right. And so it's very important to to get the right actor, number one, but also to direct it in, in such a way that we are constantly referencing history and the eyewitness accounts of the spirit that Joseph would speak in or... Um, or the, his body language in a certain instance. You know, those little details are so, so important that will help to actually tell an accurate history of who he was. Gotcha, gotcha. So how do you take... So I like the fact you're saying um, that you're going to establish the histor- historical events based off of two or three accounts. Mm-hmm. I think that's massively important because we don't... A lot of shoddy history has been done based off of somebody's account. Mm-hmm. Now, there's certainly things... So I'm an early American history honk. I mean, when it comes to George Washington, man, dude's my hero. Um, he's everything I wish I could be that someday maybe when I grow up, I'll get kind of close. But he was also a man, right? And so we know he, he had faults. So the, the fact you're going to use two or three witnesses are great. Because there is some shoddy history out there. Now, there's some stuff I've read that's a one-off account, but it sounds like Washington. But you can't hang your hat on that. So I can appreciate that. How do you take all that historical data and then turn that into a script? What's that process like? Well, it's uh, it's about 95% research okay. <laughs> and 5% actually scripting. Okay. Because... We're determined to get it accurate. But I will say this. There are things in people's journals about Joseph Smith where they will say wording like, he manifested a disposition of anger. Okay. And so to be true to that history and that eyewitness account, you say, okay, how do we show he manifested a disposition of anger in a film? Okay. So we have to take some kind of liberty to give some dialogue right? that does manifest the disposition of anger. right? And a lot of people will say, well, that's not right because now you're putting words in his mouth that he didn't really say. And frankly, if you were to go to church with a pencil and a paper and you were to try to write down a sermon, how much would you get of what they oh, actually said? So 
we're not trying to put words in Joseph Smith's mouth or anybody else's. We're trying to manifest the disposition that somebody said that they had. I got you. And, and so that part of the scripting process becomes, and I'll give you an example. Turn the mic. So we're, we're doing a short film to open this up, kind of like The Chosen did. Right. Okay. And, and we've got a, uh, a character, Charles Stoddard. Okay. Okay. He was 14 years old. He was working for Joseph Smith and William Law at the same time when they were at odds with each other in Nauvoo. And I was a bum at 14. I wasn't working. Too <laughs> yeah. I wasn't right. Working a right. So, but, but he tells it, he tells a story of overhearing William law and other people that had been cut off the church mm-hmm. conspiring mm-hmm. against Joseph Smith. And in his record, he says they were conspiring against Joseph Smith, but he doesn't say exactly what they said, except for one line. Don't worry. I'll take care of it myself. I'll have the Stoddard boy clean my gun in the morning and I'll take care of old Joseph Smith myself. That's Ooh. the one line he records in there, but he says that they had a big meeting and they were conspiring, and he listened. So but I have there to say, off that last line that you can kind of get. Yes, that's a basis. True to the to exactly the, the, that's the a feel of the meeting. Right, that's a basis. But then you also got to say, okay, what month was this? Oh, April of eighteen forty-four. How did these guys feel at that time in Nauvoo? And you go do other research. Okay. What were the feelings of William Law, Robert Foster, the Higbees, Sylvester Emmons, and those who actually did the Nauvoo Expositor? And when you find out what their feelings were. Then you can insert the dialogue of the conspiracy. I got you. And it's still true to history. Does right. that make sense? Yeah. They may have not said it in that exact moment, but there's enough history that shows they felt that way. Perfect. So that's part of the scripting process. Go ahead. I think that part's going to be really fun personally because, you know, you asked that question, what does it look like when you, if you took a pencil and paper to to describe some sermons. We know what that looks like because before Pittman shorthand was introduced into the church and George D. Watt was doing that work for, you know, in the journal of discourses, you know, you had Wilford Woodruff and Franklin D. Richards and William Clayton and Willard Richards. They all had pencil and paper and they didn't know shorthand. And they, so they have, they wrote down what they could remember and what they could put to paper. And sometimes it comes across different, right? Mm-hmm. And, but when you look at all the similarities of the outline, I, I love Personally, I do this sometimes where I'll, I'll make an amalgamation kind of of a certain sermon that Joseph Smith gave. Sure. When, and you just kind of take all of those things and you put them together. And I love it. I love doing it. And that. I don't think that's historically, I don't, I don't think that that is misleading at all, right? You, look, we can't recreate every moment sure. from somebody's life. None of us have 30-some years to watch a movie, <laughs> right? Unless it's Fast and Furious. Somehow that continues. But... <laughs> But for the most part, we can't do that. And I like what you said about historical um, kind of gathering those facts and staying true to the story. At the same time, you, you've got to make a script. Mm-hmm. And, and full disclosure, um, I, that, that Christmas episode I did where I talked about my dad. I was really concerned about that, and I haven't told anyone this, but I sent I sent the first copy to David because I'm like, okay, you're a film guy. You know about this, and told him the whole story that I told at the end of the podcast before I told the story, and I, I was worried about that. Is someone going to call me a liar down the road because I had to formulate the rest of the story? The 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 other events are, are important, but and the, the basis for all of it, but you still have to round out a story, and that's what I did. So I, I really appreciate you doing that for me because that was that was huge. I was nervous about that one. <laughs> Certainly, that's that's part of the storytelling aspect is that you 
as a storyteller, let, let me just put it this way. Um, some story, some like the amalgamations that Mike was mentioning, something stood out to Willard Richards that didn't stand out to William right. Clayton. Something stood out to William Clayton that didn't to somebody else. Right. right. And uh, and so when he, when you sit these four guys that all recorded this same sermon of Joseph Smith, they're all going to tell it different. Right. Because that was their experience with it. And that's why it's nice to find two or three witnesses of the same event. Right. Because then you get more rounded story. Right. right? Well, when it comes to filmmaking and creative storytelling, some of it doesn't have to be linear. For example, let's say, um, let's say, for example, the revelations that were given to a lot of Joseph's brothers and his father about a marvelous work is about to come forth, right? Right. So thrust in your sickle. Okay. So let's say that I open an episode with that revelation being delivered to Hiram Smith, right? And that's in late, what would you say, 1829? Yeah, probably. 1829. And then we start the episode with with that revelation. He's receiving it from Joseph's mouth. Right. Right. Okay. Now, let's say we're going, telling the story linearly, and then later the Smith family's having a conversation about Alvin who died. Right. Or that Joseph Smith finds himself in a, a difficult situation where he's humble, and we have him sitting down in the forest just pondering, and he has a flashback of when he was in the field with Alvin thrusting in the sickle. Oh. Right? Yeah. And Joseph had just basically gotten out of the bedroom after Moroni comes to him and talked to him all night, and he's weak and stuff like that. One event took place before the other. Right. But in the film, we're we're telling the end part last because if it's done right, you get the right music and everything like that, then the last part has more impact by telling that the end last or the the beginning last right does that make sense yeah no no it does so and, and and again that's not being historically inaccurate like your christmas story because in the end you told it you told okay this person wasn't real right right and and you you cleared the air but the story would have been less impactful if you didn't tell it the way that you did right now in no way did you lie because in the end you said okay Let's clear the air. This person's not real. But this particular story is. Took place, and, yeah. Yeah, took place. And so as long as you're being honest in all of that, it's not really a lie. Your encouragement, though, is that people will stay to the end of the end episode. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they don't just say, all oh, this guy's exactly. lying and leave. Well, and, and what you talk about there in storytelling is so important. For as long as mankind has had fire and been able to gather around with his children and his wife or wives or whatever, his tribe. Mm-hmm. It's been stories that have communicated important ideas. Right. And without those stories, we we as a people, as a society, <clears throat> will die on the vine. Um, it's it's stories that um that that kind of frame our, our point of reference, right? Yeah. I look at, at, at a story like, look, no matter how you feel about the priesthood and the, the priesthood ban, I think we can all agree that the way slavery was, was done on, in, in the United States was a horrible thing, right? Um, 
uh, it wasn't like what it talks about in the Bible where it's seven years and then you're, you're free. This was something that was forever that was abusive. It was a story that changed a lot of people's um, opinion of slavery. It was Uncle Tom's Cabin. So stories are, are a powerful mechanism for trying to either change society, good or bad, or um, a, a way of properly framing history. What would you have, Michael? <clears throat> when you were talking about you know sitting down with your tribe for, and whatnot, it's interesting to note, you know, scripturally and historically, when when we look at Adam and Eve, and you know they get the commandments, the first two, right? You know, don't partake of the fruit and multiply or punish the earth. Then the next one after that whole situation evolved was offer sacrifices. And the next one was keep a book of remembrance. Right. And that was from the very get-go, the foundation of his history and, and society. It was the, the Lord told them to keep a book of remembrance and to teach your children out of it. And it says that because they did this, that they were taught out of a language which was pure and undefiled. And even more interestingly... Um, I mean, it wasn't just history, but it was also scripture and inspiration, revelations. And it said any of that family, you know, were able to write by the spirit of inspiration, you know, when they asked for it or when it was given to them, you know, and that was what was passed down. Right. That is what and that's what gave them tribe, you know, and yeah. culture and, you know, a belonging to knowing where they belong in God's family. Right. You know, and so, yeah, it's so important for us to to look at our history and to acknowledge it and to, you know, even from a gospel point of view, our salvation is dependent on embracing our fathers. Right. You know, that's, that's the spirit of Elijah. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's funny because without those stories, we don't know who we are. I mean, I'll, and and this comes from a very personal place to me, a a story that I, I related in, I keep, I hate going back to this, but, um, that, that, Christmas story was the incident that took place between me and my mom when I was, you know, pushing 15, 16 years old, and I got all of a sudden learn how to shave, and I don't know how to do it, and it was a mechanism. I, I, I do remember yelling at her, I don't know who I am. I mean, my dad's gone. I don't, you know, you're adopted. I don't know anything about my family. And so without those stories, we really have no identity, right? Mm-hmm. As much as we all hate to admit it, especially in today's society we are who we are because of what our ancestors did right mm-hmm. the whole reason we're not speaking german right now was because some of us had <laughs> had the the fortitude and, and the sack quite frankly to do that what what would you have there mike no i'm just laughing you <laughs> would be speaking german, german right now right. yeah and i feel yeah with any yeah at any point in history right yeah, something. If someone didn't do something, you know, you could get overrun by your neighbors. And German's an <clears throat> ugly language. I mean, no one likes to ever hear that. I mean, all right. But I like <laughs> I like German food though. So, okay, you know, and there's well, who and doesn't and, like and bratwurst? Oh, I mean, right, right, but, with sauerkraut and some nice mustard. Oh yeah, but yeah. So you know, we're, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for my heritage. And you know, when I was younger, I didn't care. You know, but as I got older, I I did. I learned to care. And one of the defining points, if I can tell about that, was. Uh, I decided to. Oh, I decided to read the church, one of the church institute manuals, which was called the uh, Church History in the Dispensation of the Fullness of Times. Okay. And I've always been a voracious reader, and you're kind of on lockdown when you're serving a mission. You really, you know, you you need 
special approval to, you know, to get certain things, but that, you know, that was given pretty freely. Right. But I became addicted to church history when I read, when I started reading that and it was told, you know, in these sec, in these sections, you know, telling the, the rise of the church from eight, before 1829 to, you know, to early Utah. You know, right. And, and maybe even middle Utah period, you know, and, but the way it was taught and told whoever wrote that, and I'm thankful for him because it, it put a love of my heritage in me. Yeah. And it's, it's blessed me. You know, at coming into the church, I came into the church right about the time they were, uh, Gerald N. Lund was uh, writing the Work in the Glory series. Okay. And being a, a new member, it was those stories told from the point of view of a fictional family within the early days of the Restoration. Yeah, the Steeds. Yeah, the Steeds, exactly. Who, by the way, is a large name down in the fundamentalist circles, right? But, but what, what I can't, I didn't know that at the time, obviously. <laughs> but uh, now thinking back to it, there were a ton of hints along the way that I was going to end up a fundamentalist. I just looking back. But anyway, um, it, it was that, that that informed me of what, what was now my history, right? What was my, my heritage to a large degree? Without that, I wouldn't have had that. And, and being able to tell things in a story is so effective. Um, it, it's way more... Look, part of the reason I think we're, we're so bad on our history now is it's been taught so crappy for so many years, right? Um, and so now we're, we have an opportunity like never before to tell good history. Absolutely. I was just going to say, David, I absolutely am enthralled and, and, and so grateful that you adopted, you know, that history as your own, you know, oh. coming from, coming, coming from, uh, you know, non-pioneer heritage, right? Like, do you have any of that in you? No, no, no I, I'm I the only so. Mormon on either right. side of my family. And so for you to call that your heritage, like that just warms my heart. <laughs> which, which is good and bad, right? Good. Well, it's it's bad in the sense I don't have any of those cool stories of my own. Oh, I don't either. I'm not related to any church leaders. It's, yeah, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not church royalty. So right. I kind of get what you're what you're putting down there. But it's good in the sense that when I, I joined, you know, when I became a fundamentalist and I told my side of the family what I was doing, they were like, "Well, yeah, isn't that what Mormons do?" <laughs> I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have nearly the pushback like my my poor wife Amber did. But I mean, so it's it's good and bad. But yeah, no, I, I, I'm. I'm, I was very grateful for those books, even in the moment, which is odd for me. Normally, I, I can look back later and be like, oh, those were those were so important or this event was so important. In the moment, I remember thinking, I'm glad I have these because they I felt like it told a pretty true account. Right. Were there some liberties taken and were there some things that were incorrect? Sure. But by and large, I felt like one did a good job. But I think it just goes to show how important stories are to frame it. And today, um, we're, we're in a fight for the soul of Joseph Smith. I don't know how else to say it, right? Joseph is fine on the other side. It's us here that have to now save his, his memory and make sure his name is had for more good than evil. Um, well put. Yeah, well put. And, and so we have, we have uh, folks who are blatantly Mormon, I mean anti-Mormon, that come out and slander his name, call him a pedophile, do all sorts of things without really taking in context of history, because context in history matters a ton. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and and then we have some groups I'm looking at you doctrine of Christ who are a little bit more nefarious than than someone who's just out and out saying you know hey I I'm anti Joseph Smith or I'm anti Mormon they seek to corrupt the history through um through nefarious ways by making a Joseph Smith that's not historically accurate and then slandering the names of John Taylor and Willard Richard. So we're, and now I'll take your hate mail. Um, <laughs> and so um, this, what you're doing, Dave, is so important because it, it really is part of that fight for, for the history of Joseph Smith. Now I'm, I'm going to ask something. Anyway, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, 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 if, yeah, if you ahead. don't mind. Yeah. Um, so what we have in our day and time is what I call documentary historians mm-hmm. and hearsay historians. Right. And the hearsay historians are the ones that have reached out to you and say, well, did you know that Brigham Young was a racist bigot? Did you know that Joseph Smith was a pedophile and, a, and, and he hided behind a pretended revelation to justify his, his activity and all this kind of stuff? And these, the hearsay historians are lazy. Right. I, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. They're very yeah. lazy. They won't go research for themselves. They, they just whatever the hearsay and the gossip is about the person, and they'll go spread it like yep. wildfire. And uh, the documentary historians are the ones that will actually go and find documents, and they they will go to the archives. They will go to the books where other people have gone to the archives where they verified. There's signed affidavits and different things saying, "Hey, um, I witnessed this. I, right. I saw this happen. This miracle did take place." Um, this this guy attempted to kill Joseph Smith, but the gun wouldn't go off. You know, right. things like that. Um, but when he shot at a post, it did. Right. God preserved Joseph Smith at a time where a lot of people were losing their faith in him. You know, those kinds of things. And they're eyewitness people that are saying this happened and yeah. signed an affidavit to say that it happened. And then you have um, other documents that are also by hearsay historians like Philastus Hurlbut going back to New York looking for people to slander the Smith family and they find Willard Chase who was the guy that was actually looking for the plates when Joseph got him who would say stuff to demean the Smith family like one time Hiram Smith shook his finger at me and so abused me as if that's a bad thing right I mean we're talking about that that's a signed affidavit that people oh no the Smiths were awful people because Hiram Smith shook his finger at Willard Chase and so abused me. So there were woke people back then? That's what I'm saying. Wow. That same spirit. Exactly. It's, it's, it's that cry for victimhood. Oh, right. I felt bad that he did this, therefore the Smith family's bad. Right. And and uh, those kinds of affidavits ended up in, I'm not kidding, LDS historians' books about who Joseph Smith and his family were, and people buy it wholesale. Oh. Because they relate to it because they themselves are a little woke. Right. And and so that's just what I wanted to say about the different variety of, of historians you get. The documentary historians or people like Mike that actually research. Right. Dig deep. And I'm so grateful that, that Joseph Smith had enough prophetic insight to say, take records. Right. Well... <laughs> Because he, he probably knew this would happen. Yeah. I want to steal this mic back. I got a comment. No, I mean, it's so important. You go through the scriptures, and it says in multiple places, out of the books that are kept, the world will be judged and, and the inhabitants thereof. You know, when the Ancient of Days comes, what does it say? The books will be opened. You right. Know? Uh, and then Revelations, the book of the, of the Lamb of God, book of life, 
and, and then the books on earth, right? You know, and uh, section 127, 128, you know, the records of, you know, going through the ordinances for the dead and these things need to be recorded because out of the, those books, they need to, you know, balance with, with the books that the angels right. in heaven are. You know, so these these things are super important, you know, th- th- to keep these records. Right. You got something? Yeah, I was just going to say that fits along the law of witnesses. Right. Heaven is a witness to it. If there's not a second witness on earth, it's not valid. Right. It hasn't fulfilled the law of witness. Right. <laughs> Excuse me. Real quick, are you, David, are you going to be able to keep complete creative control through this process? That's hard to say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I may need people to um, remind me not to be so much of a pushover because inevitably there's going to be people that want to be involved, that want to, to, to tell how it was in their mind. Right. And um, And... Ultimately, and this is where I hope Mike comes in and, and other historians that I've already talked to that are on board, um, when that pushback comes and say, oh, no, you need to portray Joseph Smith like this, those historians come forward with the documentary stuff we're talking, the okay. documents to say, hey, this is what it says. This okay. is what the eyewitnesses say. And and therefore, this is how we're telling the history. Right. Be- no, that makes sense. I appreciate the vote of confidence and you know a quote from Brigham Young comes to mind you know when people were asking him you know do you consider yourself Joseph Smith's successor and he basically says you never heard me say so I just consider myself a good dog to keep the wolves out of the flock right <laughs> and and you know I think I have a good BS meter <laughs> too. Right? so I think I think we'll be fine on that and those things will be picked up on if anyone does get involved and it has a revisionist agenda or anything, you know, I, I'll, I'll sniff that out like nothing. I will say, David, in answer to your question, um, financing is pretty important, right? you know, to, to get enough of resources to actually make a high quality um, experience sure. in the storytelling. And, uh, and it's very possible that, that people will be like, well, I'll invest or I'll donate if... Oh. If, 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 if you do this or if you do that, let me see your script first, then I'll decide. And uh, I'm not taking money if they want me to go against the actual history. Right. I don't want their money. Good I don't, for I you. I don't want their involvement. Um, Good for you. Because the, the way that I feel about it right now is that this is a missionary work first. Right. And, and if it ends up being a little less quality, technically speaking, I will never sacrifice the quality of the history for technical quality. Good for you. So, because look, more important than CGI is the actual. Let's face it, you're you're not making the Avengers, right? You don't need no. aliens coming out of a no. hole in the sky in New York, right. right? What's more important here is the storytelling. Absolutely, the 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 telling of the accurate history. With that said. And it sounds like you're going to be pretty involved all the way through, as will Mike. How do you see your guys? There, there's a couple of events I'm curious on how you see it being portrayed. One is like the miraculous stuff, right? The the sacred grove stuff, the the Kirtland Temple stuff. Uh, how how do you foresee being able, and without giving away the farm, how do you see that <laughs> being able to? To be told, is that something that will be told in terms of just dialogue between other people? Do you imagine showing that event? Okay, opening scene, season one, episode one. I'll give you a teaser. (laughs) Alvin and Hiram and Joseph and Joseph Sr. are all out in the field. 
harvesting. Okay. And uh, Alvin notices Joseph isn't working as hard as he usually does. In this moment, as an audience, we are Alvin. Okay. We are seeing Joseph Smith from Alvin's perspective. Then we cut over to Joseph Smith Sr., who also notices Joseph isn't feeling well. Can't get enough of the Mormon Renegade podcast? Well, good news. We're on Patreon, and there's three packages that you can choose from. The first one, the Slightly Rowdy Package, allows you to hear the podcast without all those pesky commercials getting in the way. For those who want a slightly more in-depth experience, there's the Stirring It Up Package, where you can hear ad-free audio, ad-free video, and transcripts. Finally, for those who want to go full Renegade, that package is available too, where you can get everything in the previous two packages, plus an extra show where myself and Ben Winfield break down the news of the day from a very Mormon point of view. You will also get exclusive access to Renegade Chat, and on there you'll be able to talk to others about the show or whatever topics are on your mind. Go to Patreon today and get your exclusive content. Okay. We are seeing Joseph Smith from Alvin's perspective. Then we cut over to Joseph Smith Sr., who also notices Joseph isn't feeling well. We are now Joseph Smith Sr. And Joseph Sr. says, you don't look like you're feeling well, son. Go home. Rest up. And then Joseph Jr. tries to climb over the fence and falls down. And according to Joseph's history, Moroni appears above him. Right. But we're Alvin, and we're Hiram, and we're Joseph Sr. and Lucy Mack Smith. That's who we are as an audience. And so what happens is Joseph Sr. runs over there and talks to him, and Joseph says, Father, I need to tell you something. A messenger visited me during the night. Okay. This happened. And we are experiencing Joseph Sr.'s first time hearing this. Gotcha. We didn't. We didn't see anything miraculous. We're, exper- we're just analyzing. Later on, you'll have a Lucy Harris right. experience and a Martin Harris experience and an Oliver Cowdery. We're, we're experiencing it from their eyes. Now... If there's an important part of history that only Joseph tells about in the actual uh, document part, or, or that like the what will you say the supernatural side of things, mm-hmm. then um, well, obviously there's multiple witnesses of an angel showing the Bible or the Book of Mormon plates, right? right? So we can show that. But if there's a time where somebody's being doubtful of Joseph Smith's story and he's relating it, then we can show it. Okay. Gotcha. We can show it because he's relating it to this person. I but see. as much as possible, though, the approach I'm taking is from other people's perspective, and especially the women in Nauvoo, in the Nauvoo period. That's where I was going next. Okay. Was was the 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 stuff about plural marriage? How are you going to broach that? Because understand, your audience is going to be wide ranging on the Mormon spectrum. There's going to be guys like me when he, when I see Joseph practicing plural marriage, I'm gonna be like, <laughs> and then there's gonna be other people who are very sensitive to this, very very irritated, weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. I like it. I like it. Well, well, okay. I'm also step back just a little bit. <laughs> uh, so, no, um, it it will be addressed. That much I can say. It will be addressed. Okay. And, and again, it will be approached from actual history, not hearsay history. Okay. It, it's going to be witnesses. Okay. Um, and, and oddly enough, the short that we are releasing for free to announce the series addresses it head on. Really? Head on, but it addresses it from the William and Jane Law perspective. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. And and so um, stay tuned for that. Sometime, do, do you have a release date on that yet? Sometime this year. I'm hoping to have that one Woo-hoo! finished. So, um, uh, uh, and it's involved some extensive research for an 11-page script. I mean, extensive, <laughs> extensive research. I mean, I've gone into William Law's journal and the wording of the Nauvoo Expositor to get an idea of how these people felt and what their concern was and all kinds of things. So I didn't re- just research Joseph Smith and the anointed quorums side of things. I researched William Law and the Higbees and the Nauvoo Expositor Group side of things. Gotcha. And and so in, when it comes to the storytelling, I do want to tell how both sides felt, but come to the conclusion of what history said happened. Gotcha. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect okay. sense. Okay. So yes, it will be addressed. Um, it's history. Right. It has to be told. Right. You know, even, even if there's, uh, oh, what was the instance? Howard Curry, young man named Howard Curry, a little bit skinny, about 130 pounds. Joseph was pushing 220, and Joseph loved to wrestle. Right. You know, and he playfully starts wrestling with Howard Curry and ends up breaking his leg, right? Um, that's not a good look for Joseph Smith, but it's history. Right. But right. what he did after it, according to Howard Curry, is he gave Howard Curry one of the greatest blessings he ever received in his life. Right. And it led to a testimony of who he was, Howard Curry was going to marry. That sounds like the, yeah. the Lord wrestling with Jacob. And right. <laughs> the well, Lord that, breaks Jacob's leg. Interestingly <laughs> enough, interestingly enough, Howard Curry cited that scripture and mentioned to Joseph. Really? When, the, when the, Jacob wrestled with the Lord, he requested a blessing and the Lord gave it to him. And so Joseph gave him a blessing. So, yes. Your hearsay historians will say, well, did you know that Joseph Smith purposely broke a guy's leg? Right. right. <laughs> so then, okay, let's, let's tell the rest of the story. And right. so in other words, if, it look, if, if something looks bad toward Joseph Smith temporarily, just stay tuned to the end of the episode because right. the history reveals some, some amazing stuff about the man. Well, and I think it's so important that, one, history gets told in context. Yes. Context is important. Huge. <laughs> Right, when we start talking about Helen Mark Kimball, who was the girl that was almost 15. I had a good friend. I think it was Helen Mark Kimball. I could be wrong. I had a good friend who was freaked out about this. I mean, freaked out. And I was like, okay, slow your roll. Let's let's talk this out. I was like, and, and I had a little bit of experience with this due to all my, my research I did into the Founders specifically Washington. I was like, let's say it's frontier, whatever, in that time period. Let's just say Emma died and then Joseph married this girl. What then? Well, it's not nearly the controversy, right? Was was she young? Yes. But that was not uncommon. And women matured faster in those times. I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch of things. I did a deep dive on just this thing because this guy was freaked out. And right down to diet can affect maturity levels, right? And so, you know, while it would never fly today, nor should it, right? Uh, I want to make that clear. I'm not advocating for a 14-year-old getting married. Let's get that off the table now. Somehow I know I'm going to have to address this again. But I'm not in favor of that. But for that time period, that wasn't scandalous the scandalous portion was the plural marriage portion mike no i was same thing as you man i i 
I hesitate because of how taboo the situation is when it talks when, when you talk about teenagers marrying, you know, especially older people. But I've looked at the city ordinances of Nauvoo and the city laws. It said that it was it was legal for men to marry at 16 and for women to marry at 14. Yep. I've seen it and that's just the way it was. And we in our culture, that is weird and that is not considered normal. Uh, But I don't really think we can stand to judge them for what they consider normal at their time. No, because if we try to, it's called presentism. If we try to tell history through presentism, we're going to find all sorts of crap that we're not going to be able to wrap our minds around because we're we're a different people entirely now, right? Yes. Um, And so, I, I mean, the average age was like 53 or something, something crazy. Right. And so you have to take into account context, which is yes. something that that the critics of Joseph Smith never do. Right. They just puke the fact and then expect you to be outraged. Right. And and history told through presentism will say that Joseph Smith married underage girls. Actual history says they weren't underage in that day. No. No. And therefore the context is important. That's another part of our research. How was society that day, and how were the laws? And, and to illustrate it even further, um, the martyrdom. When we get to that point in, in the series, the martyrdom, I've got a book called um, The Martyrdom of Joseph. That's what it's actually called. But this book doesn't just tell what happened at Carthage. It tells all the newspapers throughout the entire country leading up to it and all the things that mm-hmm. they were saying and all of the states putting pressure on Illinois to do something about this guy because if he becomes president, then we are going to lose our political pull. Right. There, there's so much out there that we could tell that was going on on a broader spectrum. Right. About how much of a ripple effect Joseph Smith Jr. was having on the world and how scared they were because of it. You know, you bring up a, a very interesting fact on Joseph Smith and, and the ripples that were, were happening during that period in his life. When I, I lived, me and Amber moved back east to Maryland for a little while. Okay. And I worked for a company who would map the digs for the archaeological department for the University of Maryland. Fascinating work. Some of the best work I ever did as a surveyor. And being a history honk and getting to go explore old town sites and that sort of thing, absolutely awesome. But one of the perks was is I got to take like three credits every semester for free because we were technically working for the university. So I took a course in Jacksonian America. Now, you can't really talk about Jacksonian America without talking about the Mormons, Right. Um, and I remember my prof- the professor said something that, that struck me. Now, this is Maryland, so I think I'm sure I was the only Mormon in, in the class. Um, keep in mind, my home teaching radius in those days was 100 miles, right? So I was covering most of the Delmarva Peninsula, trying to get it done within a month. I wish they would have had Zoom back in those days. Um, but... Um, the professor said something I found very, very profound. He said, when you are dealing with Joseph Smith, you have to conclude one of two options. He was either one, the most raw genius that America ever produced, maybe the world, to be able to establish cities and communities. And he he then kind of veered off and he said, okay, how many chapels did Joseph Smith build in his lifetime? Anyone? Zero. 
Zero was the the number. He built temples and cities. He's like, you do not see men in history that are able to build society most of the time without inflicting massive amounts of bloodshed. The other option was he was who he said he was. And I asked my professor um, at the at the end of the semester, I was like, all right, I'm a Mormon. I got to know, which side do you fall on? He said, well, I just don't ask the question. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> so, so, I mean... That's that's from the, the the mouth of an academic, right? And so Joseph Smith definitely did have an impact, and it's at, from just a purely academic and and historical sense, it's been something that's frustrated me for a long time. Is that why hasn't anyone else done this with Joseph Smith yet? Yeah. Why do you think that is, David? I think it's mostly because he's such a controversial, controversial historical figure. And because Moroni told him right off the bat, right. your name will be had for good and evil right, throughout all nations. And, uh, and I do think that that alone is intimidating. Mm-hmm. It's be, I, I don't want to call him a polarizing figure, but in a historical context, because of the reactions of people, he is a polarizing figure. And I just think... Uh, I will admit it's highly ambitious. It's a lofty thing to attempt to tell the entire arcing ministry of Joseph Smith. But because of what we're facing today, it needs to be done. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think what you're doing is absolutely vital. Now, I know that the the church has—I don't know if I should say the church or T.C. Christensen or just the the, the marriage between the church and T.C. Christensen. And and real quick, tell us who T.C. Christensen is. He's a famous LDS actor and producer, correct? He's a famous director and cinematographer. And uh, he he did 17 Miracles and Ephraim's Rescue and the Cokeville Miracle. He's done basically the, for lack of a better term, the LDS blockbusters. Right. But he was also the one that was hired by the church to do the film Joseph, Prophet of the Restoration, okay. which was one of the most inspiring pieces of film that was ever put together. It was a really good one. It was and, only about an hour long, though. Yeah, it was about an hour long, and the church played them at uh, historic sites right. for a long time. They played it there. It's very, very impactful, in my opinion. And they touched on Joseph Smith in an hour. In, in, in his entire story in an hour. And uh, his, his life and his ministry and the miracles that happened that tell who he is, a movie can't do that. Right. It has to be a fully fleshed series. And, and so with that, if you're okay with it, I will tell you the six seasons, the names of the six seasons. Oh, please, yeah. Okay. Season one is Gold Bible. Okay. And we're going to start as 17-year-old Joseph telling his father about him. Okay. An angel visiting him and telling him some Old Testament stuff that people don't care about anymore. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, and it goes from, from that moment clear up until the printing of the Book of Mormon. Okay. Okay. And uh, then the season two is their exodus from New York in the Kirtland era. So we just call it Kirtland. It's the rise of Philastus Hurlbut and other enemies to the right. church. and and some of the conflict there, plus some of the uh, manifestations, both good and bad, <laughs> yeah. that they had to combat. Um, you know, I remember, sorry to derail you, I'll let you finish okay. here in a second. I remember thinking anyone took a guy named Hurlbut seriously. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I, well, 
Okay. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. No, I, I know what Sorry. you mean. I'm going to, I'm going to insert. You're getting a, a small sample of what my wives have to deal with on a daily basis. I, I so. think, I think they love it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm going to give you a hint. I'll let your audience decide what this means. But one of the episodes in the Kirtland era is called Rough Stone Hurling. And when, <laughs> That's funny. And, and when they see the episode, you'll find out why. You'll nice. find out why. Um, and then we go to season three is called Exterminacion. Okay. The effort for Zion that ended up in extermination. Um, season four is the rise of Nauvoo. Okay. Season five, the fall of Nauvoo. And season six is legacy and succession. Okay. And I think they kind of speak for themselves as far as what, what content we'll be trying to capture. Um, but uh, ultimately... It's going to, there, there will be a few episodes post-martyrdom that we cover nice. to show the legacy that Joseph Smith left and the succession question and to even touch on each of the, uh, how do I word this? Claimants? Each of the claimants. That's going to be fun. Nice. Yes. Nice. So, Strang uh, and the whole group. Yep, yeah. yep. <laughs> Strang, Rigdon, um, who were some others, Cutler. Uh, Cutler didn't come until, until after. Uh, Alpheus Cutler Alpheus Cutler actually went with Brigham Young for a while, and it wasn't. Uh, and he made it to winter quarters, and at some point after being in winter quarters, I think he stayed there for a while after Brigham went to Utah. And then they just had a, they had a break. And I honestly, though, I think they had a really good relationship despite that. And it's, better it's, than Lyman White. Be, and that's way better than that. Um, you know, but then, yeah, there, you had a. Lyman White, and maybe we could talk about that. That would be interesting. And you have uh, James Emmett, who went up to South Dakota, Vermilion, South Dakota, as kind of an independent. And you have George Miller, who was with James Emmett, and then he went to James J. Strang Okay. Uh, in the end. And uh, anyway, yeah, super interesting. So I don't think George Miller claimed anything for himself, but he was kind of navigating the, the right. claimants as well, right? Right. Talk a little bit real quick about Lyman White. Uh, Lyman White was, he was the first person in this dispensation ordained to the office of high priest. And he settled in Texas, right? He did, yeah. So in 1831, when Joseph Smith began to talk about how the Lord was preparing the saints for an endowment of power, right? And he was teaching that in the school of the prophets and stuff like that. And, you know, and and that office was revealed, right? Because there weren't anything besides, uh, I mean, you had Oliver and Joseph as apostles, right? And right. you know, elders and then priests, teachers and deacons, right? And so, but Lyman White was the first person ordained high priest, and then others. Um, he was a member of um, the High Council in in Independence and Far West, right? And was down more in the Missouri period than the Kirtland period, uh, and then he was added to the Quorum of the Twelve in Nauvoo, and the Council of Fifty in Nauvoo, and he was older than Brigham Young, and so. Considering that the Quorum of the Twelve, when it was initially organized, was by age seniority, and oh. the Council of Fifty, besides the chairman being the president of the church, was organized in a round table format by age seniority, he kind of felt like, okay, I'm the oldest guy here. Right. So by patriarchal right, so to speak, I should kind of be in charge or just... You know, or you know, they can do what they or want, but have to but yeah, I don't have to. I don't have to report. Yeah, thank you. 12, yeah. And so that he was kind of in limbo for a while, and the Brigham Young tried to maintain some correspondence with him because he wasn't sure where he was fully at initially. Right. You know, uh, but yeah, he ended up settling in Zodiac, Texas, which well, he 
Lyman White have been discussing with Joseph Smith in Nauvoo about the potential location for Texas and uh, been writing letters to Sam Houston. I was going to say, there's some interesting exchanges. Didn't Sam Houston essentially offer him would be Houston now? A huge tract of land, yeah, Yeah. to to be a buffer zone between Mexico and Texas. And he's like, yeah, come down and you can be like the buffer, you know. Yeah, you know, because you know, because I guess there was tensions there, right? So it kind of was like, oh, yeah, you could help us defuse this by being a third party involved, you know. And so that was really interesting. And so yeah, they moved down to Zodiac, Texas, and Lyman White was the first uh, leader of a group that built a temple after right. Nauvoo. I, I remember hearing that he was he he built he was serious. I mean, he oh, wasn't yeah. screwing around. Right, and lived plural marriage. Yep. Yeah, so that's an independent testimony that that was a measure. What I like to call the measures of Joseph. Right. And that's what Brigham always referred to them post-succession crisis as well, is we are going to hold to the measures of Joseph. And you can follow anyone you want. The church can vote in Ann Lee, which was like a seventh or like a proto Seventh-day Adventist right. spiritualist leader. And he said the church can vote Ann Lee to be president of the church, but the priesthood is going to go build up the kingdom of God in all the world. You know? Right. You know, and to whoever who will accept it, right? And so it's interesting, very interesting sure. period of time to, to talk about sure. for sure. I'm so glad you're covering that too, because in in today in Mormonism, a lot hinges on that secession time. Yep. A ton hinges on it. Um, if you look at just if you were to look at how things like religions get started it's really based off cult kind of a cult of personality. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at the vast majority of these kind of movements, they all die off with the, the first leader. And so the fact that it continues is a miracle. Now, the fact that the next guy up is in many ways, the opposite of Joseph Smith in personality, it's even more amazing, right? Because in Joseph, you have somebody every day, I'm thinking I got to be more like Joseph. And at the end, I'm like, no, I'm way more Brigham. Mm-hmm. Right. I just am right. I'm blunt. I'm to the point. I, I, you know, but so, so I identify more with Brigham in that way. Sure. But by all accounts, that thing should have failed after Joseph Smith was done. You have a new leader who's not like the former leader whatsoever, but yet it still thrives. So I'm really glad you're covering that. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 very important to cover those types of types of things, and especially in the succession question. Um, Lyman White, and again, he was a hundred percent sincere. And and what happened is actually Lyman White and Joseph Smith were having a conversation, just trying to figure it out. Right. right. There was some some heaped up persecution that was starting to really boil over there in Illinois, and. Just in conversation, not Joseph saying, I prophesy in the name of the Lord. Just in conversation, he's like, well, what, what if we went to Texas? Right. What if, what if we went down there? Right. And I think Mike covered it, that there, you know, there was a correspondence with Sam Houston. And yep. then he had offered them to come be that buffer zone. Um, but in actual prophecy, in Brigham's presence. Right. And others, Joseph had prophesied we'll go to the Rocky Mountains. So when the martyrdom happened, Lyman White was away. I think he was Wisconsin. Yeah, he was he was cutting down pine trees or something. Right. To the, he was doing a lumber for, job for the temple. For there. the temple, exactly. He wasn't around. He wasn't around during that prophecy. So all he could hold to was what Joseph had told him when they were just having a regular conversation about what if. 
right. right? And was aware there was a little bit of a correspondence with Sam Houston. And so he was so determined he was going to fulfill Joseph's wish. We're, we're supposed to go to Texas. And Brigham and others were like, um, no. we're supposed to go to the, the Rocky Mountains. We need to get together as a quorum and figure this out. And, and Lyman wasn't willing to budge because he was dead sure this was Joseph's last wish for us. And this is the part that we miss in history in general, and especially within church history, is we tend to look at at just the superficial stuff, right? We say things like, well, why didn't Lyman White go with him? It was obvious, right? If Brigham was a man, you go with him. <laughs> but until you get get the, the historical context that, that Lyman White isn't trying to be a... An apostate. He feels he's carrying on what Joseph talked about. William Law did too, <laughs> except right. for, except for he decided Joseph Smith was a fallen prophet. Right. But and, and that's the, I agree with you. I sorry to cut you off. No. I just wanted to emphasize this point just a little bit more because that's actually how a lot of these characters will be portrayed. They're right. going to be very relatable because we live in a confusing time. Yeah. There's a lot of people that don't know what to do, and it was just as confusing back then, if not more. And so each of these characters, I think our audience is going to relate to. And I'm, I'm talking about your William Laws and your Lyman Whites and these people that, that thought they had it figured out, but the one thing that they were lacking was enough humility to double-check right. and to actually adhere to structure. Right. And actually be able to, to go to their quorums and go to their council meetings and, and be able to just get enough of the information to, or they just wouldn't pray about it. Right. To get a second witness. Uh, there's there's a lot of things like that that we definitely want to show. So in season six, Legacy and Succession, things get pretty gnarly. I think as an audience, you're observing this and you're just like, where do we go? Just like everybody else was at that time. And I wanted to also invite Mike, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this history, because I know you're more familiar with it than I am. So I, I was kind of thinking of something else to kind of lead into. That would be fun. You know, we're talking about Lyman White and, you know, the per- personalities are very interesting, and, right? And they evolve, right? And so you're, you know, and so this conversation made me reflect on Brigham Young a little bit, and and it's interesting because I I was just thinking that it's really unfortunate because it's not like Lyman White and Brigham Young couldn't have worked together, right? To, because they did believe in mostly the same, you know, as far as I'm aware. There was no doctrinal innovations or differences, no, right? No. It's a, it's a control issue. And there's statements from Brigham Young that I don't want to use the word liberal because I think it's um, misconstrued. But the personality type that Brigham Young seems to have in that time period is very different from what he has later on. And, for example, in John D. Lee's journal, he, re- he records Brigham Young saying, Once we go west, we're not going to pay. We are. How does he put it? We are not going to pay heed to quorums, but every king and priest can go you know, where they need to go and build up the kingdom of God and build churches. Oh, wow. You know, and that was kind of the, the view that Brigham had. And so it's almost, so it makes me wonder, like, why wasn't that compatible with Lyman White? Because that's almost exactly what he seemed what to want doing. to do. Right. You know, and so what was it? And so it's, but it's very interesting. And also another uh, anecdote too, and I don't, I don't, I couldn't point to a source, but I swear I've seen this before, <laughs> and okay. so I'll have to try to dig it up. Uh, but where Brigham Young was saying in those days, he was, he was more carefree, and um, jovial, or uh, than than Heber C. Kimball was in those days, which is very that would be a fun thing to portray in in those you know episodes it, as well. It will happen. 
you know, it, it, but it was the, the the weight the weight of being president of the church. Sure, transforms him from being kind of a you know, I don't I don't want to say reckless, but you know, but like being kind of just more carefree, and it burdens him, and it becomes he becomes more uh, pragmatic. You know, well, yeah, and and how could it not? Right, right. How could it not? Because now. Look, everyone, I shouldn't say everyone, most people see this this transformation of Brigham Young when the secession crisis is happening. Right. Everyone looks to him. And so now you're going to do something, and I'm sorry, this is one of the parts of Mormonism I love. This is straight up gangster, right? <laughs> you're going to load your wagons. You are going to not just leave Nauvoo, you are going to leave the United States. You are now going to go to some place with a really salty lake that you're not sure really exists yet. And yep. then out of that, you're going to carve out a civilization where you hope you can live unmolested and afraid. There's no more gangster story in all of American history than that. And if I might add, since, since your audience loves Brigham Young, in addition to that, I'm going to stay a month at the temple. Yeah. And work 20 hours a day doing people's ordinance work just in case they die on the planes. Yeah. So that they are able to pass by the sentinels in heaven and be able to go on. Yes. I love that. And, oh, and most of your, I won't say most of your audience, but most people, the only thing they know about Brigham Young is a paragraph or two that's offensive. Yeah, that's it. But I got a book written by his daughter called Brigham Young at Home. I've read it twice. And I've read other passages in the journals of discourses where other people will say why do you think brother brigham is so happy and kind and loving and these are people that knew him that are painting him to be this jovial friendly loving person and and the book brigham young at home it paints a picture that he was just such a sweet man yeah Uh, he just was when he was at the pulpit he was the lion of the lord he was just like i care about the lord and i don't care about your feelings Right. Well, let's and, and and rightfully so, right? Because look, we can make the argument today that that's what's got Mormonism and kind of the fix it is now is trying to be too catering to everybody's feelings, right? right. While we were playing to try to be nice to everybody, the a lot of factions in and out of the church were fighting to win, and we never picked up on that. Now, let let me say this. You can see why a man like Brigham would do would would have to go into that. So Brigham, he feels there's many quotes where he says I feel like I'm the father of a great family, right? He just watched his predecessor, his best friend get shot down in cold blood with his brother. He's looking to these other people whom he loves. He makes that very clear in every sermon, even even the, the, the ones that, that can be can seem kind of hard, that comes through, that he loves his people. Mm-hmm. So this is a guy that's like, over my dead body will this happen again. Sure. And if that means I've got to to be the lion, so be it. Or if I gotta send Porter out, so be it. <laughs> right? I mean, that's that's Very just well that's just all there is to it. So you can understand why someone like Brigham would go to that. Sure. But to your point, I've read other accounts where he's a very gentle man, especially mm-hmm. at home. This and one of the things that drives me nuts about the way people portray Brigham is well, he just wanted women in subjugation and servitude. Mm-hmm. Really, so that's why he sent him back east to become doctors. Mm-hmm. It's why Utah was the first place mm-hmm. where women were voting. Mm-hmm. 
And the Mormon women were so oppressed that Martha Hughes Cannon felt like she had the latitude to run against her own husband for public office and win. Right? I mean, so so when, <laughs> well when you break down all this history, you get a very different picture yes. than the lazy historians. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I'd like to point out, you know, <laughs> according to some sources, you know, Eliza R. Snow was kind of a preferred wife to Brigham Young. You got this wonderfully intelligent woman in her time period you know who it's it's not like this woman was impossible it would be impossible to oppress her Mm -hmm. and you have her with her place at the right hand of brigham young at family dinners Mm -hmm. you know she was the the governing hand when he wasn't there in the in the family and so i don't know i just when i look at the character of women in mormonism right and see that yeah they were completely comfortable with Mm -hmm. with brigham young being being the leader and the shepherd of the flock at that time yeah well, which which of us, you know, having 19 wives, are only going to end up losing one. Right. <laughs> right. They, they were so oppressed that his so oppressed. Per- percentage was over 90% successful, successful <laughs> keeping right. them, you know. So, um, man, and back to Joseph, again, this is, this is the same thing we're talking about is there's a lot of that hearsay stuff that uh, there's a lot of comments Joseph made in his sermons that people nitpick and say this is the kind of guy he was well we're not taking just sermons and making a conclusion and an assumption as to what kind of guy that was but it's a sermon out of context right that's what a tv series can do is we're not just telling the history we're actually giving the context too that's so important through this process what has been the most difficult thing to get this off the ground um so far <laughs> So far, it's uh, I'll, I'll just say it. It's the rough stone rolling actors. Okay. Um, I've I've had several conversations with those that are big fans of rough stone rolling, and and uh, and that's not the portrayal I'm going for at all because there's a lot of stuff in there that that uh, isn't eyewitness accounts. No. No, there. And, and that's my standard is eyewitness accounts. Um, that's been my biggest hurdle so far is 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 getting um, good actors on board. I think we've got some good historians on board, and that's to me that's the most important part. Right. Um, we're at that point where we're we're looking for the right actors, and that's proven to be pretty difficult so far. I didn't see that coming. I honestly thought it was going to be money or something like that. Well, you know, if it's the Lord's will, it'll it'll show up. Right. It's the uh, actors. Yeah. You know, it's funny you should mention rough stone rolling. I was that same Book of Mormon evidence conference I was telling you about before we started rolling. Um. I was at that conference, and I can't remember who the presenter was, but someone showed a clip from a Mormon Stories interview with John DeLynn where they credit Rough Stone Rolling being the switch that caused them to start questioning and get out of the church. But yet this is a book that, for whatever reason, seems to be upheld within Mormon circles. And likewise, in... in, you guys don't have to do this. I'll do this. I'm going to take a shot at Bushman right here. He seems to be pretty big on revisionist history. There is a clip of him having a fireside in somebody's home where he says, we're going to have to change the church's, the, the, the narrative that we've used for so long in the church if we wish to survive as a church. Um, which, as a guy who, who loves history and 
I always do my best to find honest history and tell honest history. That's spooky. When you start talking about changing your history, you better have some really good ground to change that on. Mm-hmm. So you're finding that a lot of people that are coming to 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 kind of, I don't know, um, audition for the part of Joseph Smith have been impacted largely by kind of that mindset of who Joseph Smith was as portrayed in Rough Stone Rolling? So, so there's specific actors that I wanted to use. Mm-hmm. And, of course, when you're pitching an idea, you got to tell them a little bit about your story and your approach. Right. And, um, and my conversations so far have led me to believe that they're big fans of Rough Stone Rolling. Mm. And uh, and that approach, and I'm not a huge advocate of it. Um, I don't have a disrespect for Bushman myself. I think he is sincere in what he's trying to do. I don't like his approach. That doesn't okay. mean I hate him. I don't like his approach because a lot of the resource material he uses are not eyewitnesses. Right. And when you know the Philastus Hurlbut's history— you know they're not actual eyewitness accounts, even though there are signed affidavits that he is referencing that say Joseph this or the Smith family that or they were involved in occult magic, etc., etc. When you know where that comes from, they weren't eyewitnesses. They were hearsay historians. Mm. And that's essentially what Bushman did is he was trying to be fair by telling both sides of the story, and he was okay. If, if you know Philastus Hurl, but I'll just give you a real... Have you, do you know his story? A little bit. Why okay. Go ahead. So he's on a mission with Orson Hyde, or was it Pratt? It was one of the Orsons. Um, we were talking about it as if it was Orson Hyde earlier. I think it was Hyde. They're in the Kirtland era. They're on a mission together. And uh, while on the mission, Philastus Hurl, but gets involved in some promiscuous activity with the ladies. And Orson Hyde's pretty concerned about how that looks as a, as a new church. Rightfully right? so, yeah. And so when he gets back to Kirtland, he reports to the high council that, that this has happened, and it's not good. And right. so they, they call a council meeting, and um, they call Philastus Hurlbut to the carpet. And he gets up, and he confesses, and he says, I'm really sorry. I'm going to do better. Um, please forgive me. I, I promise I'll do better. And so the high council's ready to just forgive him and move on, right? But Joseph Smith stands up, and he says... I don't believe this man to be sincere about his repentance. Mm. And time will prove me right. Oh, wow. So not only does he discern, he prophesies. Gotcha. But the council, it's like, well, he seemed pretty sincere to us. And so they, they let him continue in the church. Well, he was heard to say by a couple different people that he was going to wash his hands in Joseph Smith's blood. Ooh. He was so upset about it. and uh, And sure enough, shortly after... He committed the same sin again. He was cut off from the church, and he immediately goes back to New York and Pennsylvania and is paying people to sign affidavits against Joseph Smith and the Smith family because he wanted to write a book that would destroy their cause. And so he gets those affidavits, and, and there there's some stories, and we're going to include this. We're going to include this in the series. There's some stories where people refused to give a negative report against the Smith family, said that this Hurlbut fellow showed up, and he wanted us— we, we told him what we knew about the Smiths, and when he seemed dissatisfied with us, he just left. And he went to the neighbors and got an affidavit from them. Mm. And, and so he comes back to Ohio with these affidavits, and he wants to publish this book. But a, a contemporary of his, Eber D. Howe, 
who wrote the book Mormonism Unveiled, tells him, you've got too bad of a reputation. You publish a book, people are not going to get it. So just, just, just sell the affidavits to me, and I'll, I'll do it. And so Eber D. Howe gets these affidavits, and he writes a book in 1834 called Mormonism Unveiled. That book on your shelf, Rough Stone Rolling, I dare you to look through there and see how many references and how many footnotes say Mormonism Unveiled in it. And I don't think that Bushman did enough research on Philastus Hurlbut or these affidavits that he paid people to write and sign. Okay. So, yeah. They're, just, they're not claiming to be eyewitnesses. That it's, oh, it's just generally known that the Smith family's this way and that Joseph oh. Smith Jr. is this way. They're not saying, I personally saw this happen. That's now, a huge difference. That's a huge difference. Now, there are some, like Willard Chase, saying, oh, he, you know, Joseph Smith was over here digging a well with us, and while we were digging a well, uh, I found a, a, a stone, you know, kind of a, a stone that we called a seer stone, and Joseph Smith borrowed it from me, and, and he used that to translate the Book of Mormon, you know. And, of course, in that day and time, if Willard Chase is saying this and the ripple effect gets to Martin Harris and David Whitmer before they witness anything, Right, and right. they release something saying that he just put a seer stone in a hat and he translated the Book of Mormon that way, and they release statements about the translation process before they personally witnessed. Right, it. right. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And so it, it, it it's good to research the source material as well and the origin of the source material. Yeah, and and just that story alone goes back to providing context on who joseph smith was you said just a small thing in there but it speaks huge enemy that that's still punching today yeah yeah but what what i was going to say and and then we'll go back to that a little bit is you mentioned that joseph smith acquiesced to the council now yes if joseph smith was as power hungry as what a lot of books had made him out to be he had every opportunity to be like slow your roll i'm the man but he acquiesced to the council. It's that sort of context mm -hmm. that gives you, in my opinion, a good rounded estimation to who Joseph Smith really was. Mm -hmm. Now, back to Hurlbut. Did you have something before we did that, Michael? Uh, just a tiny bit, you know, but it's similar to just, you know, similar situation happened with Sidney Rigdon. And he, they were, you know, after, after they got out of Liberty, there was some conflict between Sidney Rigdon and Joseph Smith. And Joseph got to a point where he didn't want him as a counselor anymore, and they got into general conference, and uh, Joseph Smith brought forth his own evidence saying why he didn't have confidence in Sidney Rigdon anymore. Yeah. And But the church sustained him in his calling anyway. Right. And he said, okay, that's fine. And so Sidney Rigdon was considered a counselor in the first presidency to Joseph Smith still because that's that's what they decided on. Yeah. And then even though he wouldn't attend meetings and distanced himself, you know, in in your role as the historian on here, that's a big deal. I mean, that's that's a huge thing in this thing. How how are you holding up under that? Oh, it's gonna be interesting. I just had my first baby, and that's just so. Yeah, no, it's gonna. My life is changing a lot, but um, ultimately, the greatest joy I've ever experienced in my life is preaching the gospel right. and doing the work of the Lord. And if this can be a medium through which that can be accomplished to help strengthen other people's testimonies. And there's, there's nothing that, that will take precedence. Yeah. No, it. it's, it's hugely important. It's, it's one of those things that 
again, just going back to history. And right now it's needed more than ever. It seems like for some reason we as Mormons of all stripes have gotten to this place where we're, we're questioning the authenticity of Joseph Smith and certainly that secession era, mm-hmm. which is, is hugely, hugely important. So what, what you guys are doing is, is super, super cool. We're pretty excited. I think he's more excited than I am, but uh, no, he's uh, brother David is doing a phenomenal job, and I even think that he's well, he's he's probably more knowledgeable about certain things in the episode, in the things that he wants to tell than I am at this point. But we're gonna make a pretty good team, I think. But ultimately, my decision was based off of that the most joy I've ever had in my life comes from preaching the gospel mm-hmm. and and sharing that, and so. Ultimately, with whatever other priorities are in my life, trying to serve the Lord and His children come first. But I've, you know, I've always been, you know, I've, I've always been attracted to history. So it's not like this is going to be a huge obstacle for me to really get my nose deep in the, in in, in, right. in any book that's shoved in front of me or whatever I have to tackle to, to help collaborate right. with this, you know. And so, and it's fun to me. It's fun to be able to find these rhetorical connections or historical connections in one journal account and then another and you can like almost weave a tapestry with all this different information and so it's a fun challenge and uh when it really get when we really get into it it's it's just gonna be a blast what's been the hardest part about it well i don't know if i've really done too much so far you know um we're still in the early stages Mm -hmm. you know i don't i couldn't say what's been hard (laughs) at the moment (laughs) Knowing what you're gonna do next, <laughs> yeah. Knowing what I'm gonna do next, I guess is hard. You know, we 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 shot a little promotional thing, or we've been working on it piece by piece, and we we got a shot up in Richmond, Minnesota, uh, uh, Missouri. You know where David Whitmer is buried, right? You know, and that'll be a fun little thing to share when when that gets fully edited and mm-hmm. done. And uh, yeah, that was my first time really being on camera, so that was that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that might have been the hardest thing uh, because. I have a I have a pretty close to like what they call an eidetic memory, you know, a little bit. You know, if I read it, I'll remember it, right? Kind of a thing. But then you couple that with the anxiety of being on camera, and I'm reading the script, and I'm trying to get this. <laughs> hey, we have right. to take a few takes, you know, right. and get it. Oh, he he's a champion, is he? Yeah, he... but it was so much fun. Nice, nice. Um, what's what have been some of the biggest surprises through this process to you? Um, you know. Probably the probably the challenges of finding the the uh, accurate source material amidst all the murky stuff. Does that right. make sense? What I'm saying? Yeah. Um, because I mean, so far my biggest job's been history. Right. You know, because I'm trying to outline the six seasons. So I've got season one outlined in nine episodes. Right. And and I've outlined scene by scene what those scenes are, where it's located, and the characters that are going to be in the scene. Wow. Um, that has not been translated into a script. It's just an outline. And that's me waking up at 4 o'clock in the morning where I won't be bothered and researching several different source materials, comparing and seeing if right. there's enough substance there to actually have it fit the law of witnesses. Um, but I, I've got to say that uh, I think I think Mike's a champion, and I'm so grateful for him embracing this because um, – not just the gift that God's given him 
in what was the word you used something Ide- memory eidetic memory it's like, eidetic. Photo, it's like, it's like photographic okay like a photographic that, memory it's not that good you know sure right. well it's really close it's a great gift but it's his conviction for the gospel and that's right. where my heart is too is i love the gospel and i'm with john taylor nobody's done more for the salvation of man save jesus only than joseph smith did right Amen. and and because he was such a advocate for the gospel and really made it a lot simpler yeah for us yeah then that's stuff that needs to be told this is a this is a gospel mission it's essentially what it is you know and i've said it once i'll say it again most of the time what you find when people are making films is people trying to glorify their own name right you know actors just want to build their name and writers Mm -hmm. build their name up build their name up because they'll have better bigger better jobs and maybe somebody in hollywood will notice them no our job is to glorify the name of god Right. Good for you. And so the more that we glorify our own names, the more we are thwarting the work of glorifying the name of God. Right. Thus the alias. Nice. And so nice. it stays that way. The, the people that watch this, I want them to focus as much as they can on the content. Mm-hmm. Well, no. this one's going to be audio only because I don't want to compromise you in any sure. which way. No, that's, that's fine. I mean, it'll all come out in the wash someday. But it's right. just that the focus is... To always have an eye single to the glory of God. And like Mike says, it's a missionary work. The most joy he's ever gotten is in preaching the gospel. And I relate to that 100%. And if Joseph and Brigham and John Taylor were still alive today, I believe wholeheartedly they would be using the mediums of film to help spread the gospel. Right. Because they used the best resource they had, the printing press in their day, to spread the gospel. And therefore, that's what we endeavor to do on this mission. Awesome. One last question. Sure. What's been the biggest surprise to you through this? Oh, boy. Uh, Good question. Good question. What's one thing maybe you've learned? I think the biggest surprise to me is how many people are losing their testimony if they had any Mm -hmm. at all. Because they're not given the right history. They're not given actual history. They're given the right. hearsay history. Right. I heard this. Oh, yeah. So that person did that because so and so heard it. So it must have happened. Right. That's been the biggest surprise to me is how many people in our faith are just buying into hearsay history wholesale. Right. And, and it's just motivated me even more to work on this and try to get out the actual history, create a spark, see if they'll read about it and pray about it and get that testimony that they need. Awesome. Have you cast the part of Joseph Smith yet? I, I have not. <laughs> okay. What can the audience do to help with this? Okay. The biggest thing is, is we're about to release an ad. It's going to be a four-minute ad. We're, we're, we're announcing this endeavor, and we're announcing the short film. The audience, depending on when you release this, I'm holding an audition in Provo. Oh. July 15th. That's this coming Saturday, so I don't know if it'll be released by then. But um, I'd, like to, I'd like people to come out and audition. Okay. Okay. But the other thing is, is raise awareness. Okay. Raise much awareness that the short film's going to be released. And um, anybody that wants to help spread the gospel, I'm not looking for funds right now. But when we release the short film, that's when it's go time. That's when we're going to have the outline done for each of the six seasons. That's when we're going to have scripts for season one ready in place. And we're going to say, okay. Because anybody that wants to invest or donate, maybe they need a peek at the script. And so I want to make sure that those scripts are there. 
especially with like the, the, the church historian department. I talked to them, the church history department, sorry, church history preservation. Um, that's the department that basically is managing properties like Nauvoo and Palmyra right. and all these different. I've talked to them and um, they're willing to let us go and film okay. at some of these actual sites, but they need to see the scripts. Right. Because you can't just say, oh, I'm making a story about Joseph Smith. Will you please let me film in your place? Well, what are you saying about him? Right. <laughs> right. You know, and so so we want to have that in place so we can get the proper locations, et cetera, and to be able to say, hey, anybody that's thinking of, of investing or donating to push forward the gospel, here's the script. Nice. Nice. When do you think that short will be released? Do you have a time? Um, I don't have an actual date, but by the end of 23. Okay. All right. When you when you get set to release that, let me know. Okay. Kick me out a copy, and I'll blast that thing as far as I can. Awesome. Because I think what you're doing is so important for two reasons. One is this idea of telling true history. And there's a few people out there doing the job. There's there's you. There's there's Hannah Stoddard. Um, I feel like, she, by and large, she does a good she's, job. She's one of my historians. Is she? Yes. Okay. She's going yes, to be on the podcast. She's, she's awesome. She's going to be on the podcast on Tuesday. That's so fantastic. The, Great. For, for her second time. Good. I just love her and the Joseph Smith Foundation and yes. what they do. Um, so I feel like there's folks out there um, telling good history. And so this helps us to be able to connect with Joseph Smith on a deeper level. Agreed. One of the things that I've said about the founders is that we didn't do a good job of humanizing them. We turned them all into marble statues. <laughs> and unless you go dig, that's what you're going to know is a lot of hearsay history. Exactly. And and not get the full story. So to be able to connect with Joseph Smith in this way is absolutely fantastic. To tell it through through film is even more important. And, and that's for the reason that we kind of outlined at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to tell these stories because they're not the Avengers movies. It's not mm -hmm. CGI. It's not a summer blockbuster, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But if there's one thing that this The Sound of Freedom proved, and, and other movies, I should say, is that people are hungry for this. Like yes. The Chosen, for The example. Chosen. That thing is, that thing, and that blew me away. You know, I'm, I'm skeptical of being from an LDS, Look, for being from an LDS background and then, and serving a mission in, you know, essentially was a northern Bible belt and like the slamming from other Christians that I got, you know, about my faith and like they made me feel like I needed to be, like get their validation for my belief in Christ, right? You know, but that like it, so for it to be, but they no, it handled it so well, and they brought in a pretty eclectic team to yeah. br to bring it to pass, right? They had, uh, you know, some you know members of the church. They had Eastern Orthodox, you know, type you know Christian guys and a Messianic Jewish, Jewish rabbi. rabbi, and it's a, it created a really good blend. And and for me, being staunchly Mormon, you know, that was. I saw nothing offensive, uh, uh, at least in the first season, for sure. That and I just loved it. I loved the way they approached it. I felt the spirit and the way that they like. For example, and you guys probably picked up on this too. Is it made you relate to the disciples? Yep. To to who Christ had chosen, right? Yep. And it's all, it's as much about them, and then by proxy, us, right? As it is about Christ. And that was a beautiful thing to me. Look, the, and I could relate to Peter and his struggles financially and, and the stresses and I, all these things and tax evasion, you know, <laughs> or whatever. Not that I'm not that I'm not paying taxes. Uh, you know. But 
those stories, the, the, and making Matthew, you know, who he right. was and all these things. And so I guess if I had input on this, like, if we could keep that same spirit that, with what we're doing here, that would be like the the greatest thing. <laughs> Certainly. I, I got I to say this too. Most Jesus films... Right. Don't turn out great. No. Right. No, 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 just right. just from a cinematography point of view, just from mm-hmm. from from storytelling, it's not great. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's the chosen, it's way up here, then you have the passion of the Christ, and then there's fifty feet of just crud underneath mm-hmm. that. <clears throat> so they did a good job, and that's why I'm so excited for this project with Joseph Smith. So anyway. Is there a website anybody can visit yet or anything like that? Uh, just go to Facebook and search Zion Productions. Okay. There is a page there. That's where to follow for any news and updates, anything that we've got going right now because we don't have a website quite developed. Perfect. I'll, I'll put that link in the in the Wonderful. show notes Thank as well you. so people can do that. Thank you. Anything else before we wrap up, gentlemen? Uh, yes, one, one other thing in reference to The Chosen. Yeah. Um, so I know Dallas Jenkins. Okay. Yeah, he's the director of The Chosen, and I actually had conversations with him before he started it. And I just want to tell just a little tiny yeah. bit of his story because yeah. because he was involved in Hollywood. Okay, we, we, we talked about Hollywood earlier. He was involved in Hollywood, and NBC had hired him to make a movie called The Resurrection of Gavin Stone. Right? And uh, it was supposed to be his calling card in, in Hollywood. And... Uh, the movie gets released and it bombs. It bombs hard at the box office. And he was devastated. He, he thought, that's the end of my career. I, I don't know what else I can do. And so he just goes back to his humble little church. And, and he's just like, well, why couldn't we just make something about Jesus Christ's birth for Christmas? Mm. And thus was born the 20-minute short of the birth of Christ from the perspective of that shepherd, which evolved into the chosen today. And again... He, the way that he tells the story is that God purposely made that movie bomb <laughs> to get him out of Hollywood because he was called to make The Chosen. And if that movie movie had any degree of success, he'd still be in Hollywood trying to push it. Gotcha. And I just wanted to mention that. Now he's convicted in, in spreading Jesus Christ and his apostleship in The Chosen. And he's got some amazing, amazing testimonies to share. So I'm a huge advocate of The Chosen, and I like their approach. And this, if I was to put it in a nutshell, is The Chosen for Mormons. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'm going to make you... Look, first, I want to offer, if you need an extra, let me know, but you're going to need a really wide lens. But I can can certainly do that. Um, Next... After this gets done, you could do John C. Bennett. No, I'm, a, I'm was, kidding. Was he a big fat guy? <laughs> I don't I'm, know. I'm good calling it like I, it I is. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, make him a member of the first presidency, make him Will, Willard Richards. There we go. There we go. He's a big guy. Okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I have I'm no desire to be on film. Nobody <laughs> needs to see that. Um, but, but, but you get this off the ground. This goes well. You should do something on Washington. I'm just saying. No one's been hey, able to do hey, Washington yet. Washington's one of my heroes too. Yeah, absolutely. He he is. He was a man of God. He died a man of God, and, and yep. he's definitely his his story definitely needs told as well. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Awesome, gentlemen. You guys are rock stars. I appreciate it. As are you. Thank you so All much. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Bye, everybody.